Welcome to episode one of Once Upon a Lifetime. Hello, this is episode one of Once Upon a Lifetime, a historical biography podcast. We are going to be covering the lives of different people in history. Our goal is to cover from cradle to grave, not just focus on the obviously important parts of their lives that we all know about, but also to get a sense of where they come from and how their lives ended. My name is Alexis Love, and joining me today are two of the smartest ladies I know, Christina and Christine. Christina, with a K, has done a lot of the heavy lifting research-wise for this subject with me, and Christine is here in a man-on-the-street type role to help keep us on track with our storytelling. None of us are historians, but we are all teachers, and more importantly, we are, as they say, lifelong learners, and we have enjoyed very much learning about our subjects, and we are ready to share the fruits of our research with you. Enough about us. Let's jump into this first subject of the podcast, first subject ever, Audrey Hepburn. We thought she'd be a great choice for our first subject because you definitely know who she is and you probably don't know who she is. You have no idea who the lady behind the pearls is. If you're anything like me, think about Audrey Hepburn and you think about that iconic Breakfast at Tiffany's picture that I swear gets handed out at college freshman dorm room in the welcome packet. Like, you're a college freshman, here is your image of Audrey Hepburn with the pearls and the black gloves and the sunglasses and the piled up hair. There you go, she's all yours, stick her up on your wall. So the fact that this picture is really all I knew about her, now that I know more about her, just makes me sad. She's such a tremendously good friend of mine. Now that I've gotten to know her, the themes in her life, I think, are universally appealing. She experienced abandonment, survival, war, found great fulfillment in her life's work. There are some torrid affairs that we'll have to get into. Heartbreak, which, by the way, often follows torrid affairs. And um, she had crushing losses in her life, really appalling losses. She experienced incredible joy in her motherhood. And then she kind of wraps up her life with this big-hearted generosity and becomes a real model worth emulating for all women. So May 4th, 1929 is when Audrey Hepburn makes her appearance, Earthside, in Brussels, Belgium. She's born into a really wealthy Dutch family. They own several estates throughout Belgium and the Netherlands. And she seems like she's really set up to just kind of smoothly enter into the world with confidence, wealth, comfort, you know. But we see how quickly that all falls apart, though, for her. Her first six years, she spends bopping around with her parents, estate to estate. Um, As a child, as a small child, we know she was really interested in reading. She loved adventure stories in particular. And she liked playing with 
babies and animals. In spite of wealth, her childhood is not actually very happy. And this is because she has two seriously wrecked up people as parents. So I say that we start with her mother, the Baroness, Baroness Ella von Heemstra. What to say about the Baroness? Something that was really interesting is that Ella herself, when she was about 18, she she herself wanted to sing and she was an amateur theatrical. She wanted to be an opera singer. She had visions herself of being something on the stage. And her parents said, no, 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 we shall ship you off to Batvia, which is now Jakarta in Indonesia, which I'm using the entirely the wrong. They would have said this with a Dutch accent. I, I can't. There's too much phlegm for this microphone. So Ella herself, she she is shipped off to Batvia. And she she is shortly after she is married at 19. She took her five months to, to snag a husband. And I, I don't know what happened. They, I don't know what happened either. And there's kind to of Audrey's to dad? No, oh, this is Ella's first Ella's husband. first husband. She was married twice. So the first one, I didn't even write down his name. He was not interesting people. You're not missing anything. Except I, they, have they have two, two sons. Boys. Right. So it's so strange to me that there's like, I don't know, maybe it's just one of those rich people can bury anything. Something happened. Okay, to get an idea of Ella, I wrote down some little Ella quotes, some Ella-isms. If you want to realize, what would it be like to have Ella von Imstra for a mother? Here are some of her favorites. You are not very interesting. <laughs> Wait, to Audrey? To Audrey. Oh. Probably to all of her children. <laughs> Lovely. Don't fuss, just get on with it. Probably, you know, about eating tulip bulbs in the war or something like that. <laughs> Don't talk about yourself. Be on time. Don't make a spectacle of yourself. Others come first, you come second. She was a tough lady. She was tough and also sacrificed a ton for Audrey and for Audrey's career. Sacrificed or controlled. A little bit hard. The flip to side tell. of the coin, right? Absolutely. So, her, well, her first marriage breaks up. She comes home to her wealthy parents and they give her a nanny and they're like, oh, that's all right, dear. You know, you can, you can come stay here and, and be comfortable and have a nice life. And no, she goes back to Batvia, single mother now. She has two children, two boys, and she, she has met Audrey's father. She's met Joseph, Joseph Rustin. Rustin. I all of my notes they just say JR. <laughs> they don't have a frowny face, but they should because they JR should. was JR is bad news. He man. is bad news. Here's the deal. She goes and she digs up JR. He is married to another woman at this time, but they'd met maybe at parties, social things, things like that. He's married to someone else. However, what he doesn't have, he doesn't have a title and Ella does. She's some kind of low-key duchess. So, so he wants that title. He wants he can taste it. He doesn't want to work. He just wants to be awesome. And so he he has a little, frank, he wife. has a conversation with his wife. He says, well, you know, she has a title. And, and the wife, she has she has a vision somewhere else. So they shake hands and go their separate ways and Ella and Joseph Rustin are a thing. And little Audrey is going to come along. It's so strange to me how we think of that as a simpler time and a time of better morals. And oh no. <laughs> this family tree is just like split down. The Got middle. many like, branches. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like lightning has struck and the trees <laughs> yeah. in two, three, four pieces. Who yeah. even knows? Well, I mean, fidelity, that was for middle class people. I think divorce, if you could afford it, you could. it was done Back like in the, the 20s 40s. and 30s. I have not been as thoroughly researched as you two have, but the similarities in some of the things that you see like repeated yes. in Audrey's life. I'm like, oh. Oh, yes. Wow. Okay. We are, we are just it gets buckle juicy. up, Christine. It is going <laughs> to get It gets real juicy. Yes, it does. It, it does. juicy and also kind of admirable. And yeah. Both. Like, it's it's strange. Like, it's yeah, strange like the quote you mentioned like, about her mom, uh, the one about think of others first. She quotes that when she's 
you know, 50 doing stuff with UNICEF. I feel like... You could see where it could be a bad thing, but where if she held on to the good part of it, like, oh, I should think of other people. That was really transformative for her, even though her mom might have been, you know, uh, gritty. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You are so charitable. That's not what's written in my notes at all. But we'll just we'll just say gritty. Um, but you're you're right. Like, how could such a gracious, lovely person come out of this hot mess of a marriage? We're gonna find out. Ella finds out really quickly that he doesn't like to work. He has excuses, right? Yeah, just- and he's hired by her uncle. I think her uncle hires him to work at a bank, and he he's just he's basically a spendthrift and not a worker, which is a super bad combo. He just has this kind of love affair with the idea of being upper class. And at the time, that upper class, and this is where things get strange. At the time, the upper class of Europe was very much... Well, yeah, they're they're enamored with fascism. Fascism is the new thought, the new... It's very chic to be a fascist. It's it's a new way of thinking. Your parents weren't fascists. Almost yes. like we're, we're shredding this yoke of like whatever was before. And we have uh, yes. this new thing. Absolutely. Only right. the best people think this new way. Right. It just, it shows that you're modern. So you have Joseph Rustin, who's already wanting to marry up, climb up. He's a social climber. And now he's got this political hook all in, all in for fascism. This way of the future, and this is my ticket out of this middle-class slum. He is unbelievably all in. Ella, I think. I don't really know. This is a bit of speculation. It seems like Ella, after losing the first husband to some unknown cause, she's so shamed by that experience that she then is willing to do anything and go anywhere and be anything for Joseph. Well, I wonder if this is the first thing he really got excited about and stuck to. Finally hit upon the passion. The thing that he was good at, he was good at being a fascist. He takes up with Oswald Mosley and his black shirt movement. And he and Ella write articles for the black shirt newspaper. They start mingling with the Mitford sisters. The Mitford sisters are are the British Hitlerites. Paris Hitler and her sister, Nikki Hitler. (laughs) (laughs) Point being that Ella, her parents miss her sixth birthday to go to Germany to be given tours of factories, munitions factories, and... I I wish we could translate the look on your face right now, too. (laughs) I'm kind of getting like a a lesson here. This is great. It's a little bit upsetting. I mean, this is is the part that you don't really want to know. You know, Mm -hmm. you you should know. But then it kind of makes sense looking at her later life. Oh, you had some daddy issues. Oh, oh. And so, so then... You know, the little, like, surface research I do feels like, ah, it makes sense. Ella goes back to Germany again with the Mitford. She goes back, and this time she goes to Nuremberg. So they go to a rally. And she says, at Nuremberg, what struck me the most forcibly amongst the million and one impressions I received, there were, A, the wonderful fitness of every man and woman one saw on parades or on the street, and B, the refreshing atmosphere around one, the absolute freedom from any form of mental pressure or depression. These people certainly live in spiritual comfort. From Nuremberg, I went to Munich, and I never heard an angry word. They, the German people, are happy. Well, may Adolf Hitler be proud of the rebirth of this great country. Ah, scary. Ah, yes. <laughs> really scary. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but still. But still, it, it couldn't have all been true. I mean, seriously, everybody walking around like perfectly fit and happy and carefree. Well, and- she's walking around with the rich Aryan people, oh. of course. That's a jolly bit of Germany to be on before the war, isn't <laughs> right. it? Kind of a big picture explanation of this that 
helped me is to realize that fascism was also anti-communism at this point in the global discussion of political systems. They're just thinking, look how organized and happy they are. It's not hindsight. They are people of their time. Well, they're very taken up in the moment that they're in. They're taken up by this whole zeitgeist. They're just going with it because it seems right. to be popular. For those of us who don't know what you're right. Zeitgeist, almost like the feeling of the times, the energy of the moment. I suppose they feel that this is where things are happening. These are the people who are changing things. They want to be the movers and shakers. They want to be the movers and shakers because the movers and shakers are going to have the best parties and the nicest houses, I think. That is the appeal for the two of them, that they want to be where the future is going because they want to be on the top. They return from this trip all aglow, all on fire for, for the amazing things happening in Germany. And then a few weeks later upon their arrival, something happens with Joseph. He's gone. He leaves. He packs his bags, doesn't say anything. He's gone. Audrey is distraught. She Crushed. is torn apart. So Joseph Rustin is outie. He's gone back to England, and Ella and her daughter, Audrey, and her sons, Alexander and Ian, are still in Holland with the Van Heemstras. The worst. So that was literally like a couple weeks after they got back from their like Yahoo trip. Oh, right. sure. And wow. so there's speculation. It could have been the nanny. Mm -hmm. It could have just been that he went to Germany, got fired up, and was yeah. like, I can do more good in England working with Mosley, yeah. which is what he goes on to do. She says... I worshipped my father. Having him cut off from me was terribly awful. Leaving us, my father left us insecure, perhaps for life. And she also says the most traumatic event in my life. It just ripped her wide open. Now, instead of having just the tiniest little corner of his attention, he's just gone. Mm. And Ella decides that she has to be both mother and father now. Ella, who was already, she had that steel spine there. She's going to be doubly stern and protective and help form Audrey because there's no one. Audrey, at this point, becomes what she calls very needy. She's known to be super sensitive. So if someone says something, she'll take it very personally. She runs into fields, like the fields of the estate and disappears for hours and no one can find her. She's hiding. So essentially she's being a child who's sad. <laughs> she's being a sad child. But I think for Ella. Not allowed. Yes. Ella's saying, no, Audrey, don't be so needy. She says, I was always terribly grateful for affection and scared of losing it. It's just sad. Spoiler alert. We'll see that played out later on. It's like that quote from Lost years ago when... What was his name? Jack. Jack. I think he, he says something like, all great heroes have daddy issues. Here's your daddy issue. She can totally yeah. take a claim she, on she daddy issues. Anyway, her father decides, oh, I want visitation rights, which is so weird. And Ella is very surprised, but knows Audrey is just still so broken. Needy. <laughs> needy. <laughs> She's going to call her needy. That right. needy child <laughs> wants to see her daddy. <sighs> okay. So okay. she moves her to Kent, right outside of London. She says, sends it to a boarding school and says, well, your father can visit you on holidays. But out of four years she's there, he only comes four times. I, I think that Joseph Rustin would want you to know, however, that one of the times he did take her for a ride in a biplane. He might want you to be impressed with yeah. that. So maybe he wasn't such a terrible father. What do you think? Right. Well, this is what Audrey has to say about that. If I could have just seen him regularly, I would have felt he loved me. I would have felt I had a father. So a sad. little is there like a heartbreak <laughs> a little sound noise yeah we can put in here? <laughs> a little womp womp for a heartbreak <laughs> yeah. noise or like yes. a shattering yeah. like glass shattering <laughs> yeah. he is nearby however 
Though he does not visit her, he's channeling Nazi propaganda from Germany to Oswald Mosley's English headquarters through his partner, Arthur Tester. So her father eventually is identified by the British government and interned for the rest of the war under house arrest on the Isle of Man. Well, you know, given his lunching with Hitler and being a black shirt and all, all of a sudden that's not very fashionable. It's become pretty much the bottom of fashion. I mean, I know there's no trial, but... Which, you know, nowadays I'm not for that. But, you know, we're, we're back in, in 1939, so... In England. In England. It's a small island. You can manage it better. But we're, we're not condoning all of this. We're just trying to get with the zeitgeist as we were before. <laughs> so, basically, basically what's happening is that not only has Audrey lost her dad, she's also effectively lost her mother because here she's sitting all by herself in a boarding school. So here's Audrey by herself being needy. Daddy and won't even come visit. And another I'm sure reason her mom wants to put her in is to get her outside of herself. Make her more social. That doesn't really work. What does work is that she has discovered this love for ballet through being at the boarding school every Friday, I think. They send her off to do ballet lessons and she begins dreaming of Pavlova and stardom. She's going to be a prima ballerina. What happens is she gets on stage in one of these little school recitals and she performs... And people applauded for her and loved her and gave her approval. And all of a sudden, that little empty spot in her heart just got a little bit fuller. Like That felt right. That is That made her feel happy. She could forget her problems just maybe for that little bit and dance and, and receive some approval. Okay, we're moving on to war. War begins September 3rd, 1939. Britain declares war on Germany. Holland is traditionally neutral. And... Clearly, Britain is not about to be neutral. So Ella thinks, I'll take Audrey home to one of my family ancestral houses. We will live there and wait out this small German-British conflict in the neutrality and peace of Holland. Her mother, Ella, was just, she, she was a very smart woman, except when it came to choosing husbands and choosing places to spend a war. I mean, it was just the worst possible <laughs> scenario. So, just so a, true. She just thought, she would be safer, which is, in hindsight, almost the worst possible solution to her problem. Once Ella takes Audrey out of England and back into the Netherlands, Audrey is told she can't speak English, she has to speak Dutch, so she'd probably better learn it. <laughs> Within three weeks is in school, full time. Oh my gosh. And she says about that, it was hard, but I had to do it, so I did it. And that... <laughs> That to me is just... I feel like that's kind of her life. It is. (laughs) That's like her t-shirt tagline. It is. It's kind of hard, but I did it. Hashtag. Yeah. Hard, but I did it. (laughs) Yes. So true. She has a little quote here. I sat at my little bench completely baffled. For several days, I went home weeping, but I knew I just couldn't give up. I was forced to learn the language quickly, and I did. And by the end of her life, she speaks five languages. So she's kind of gritty, too. She is. I mean... That's hardcore. She's gritty and classy. And that is a weird combo. It is. Well, I feel it's a great that, combo. Well, the, I think the only bright spot she had during this time was to dance. That yeah. is when she she yes. found out that she could perform. That somehow yeah. people enjoyed watching her and approved of her on the stage. And she got feedback that for once was positive and immediate. And I love that. I feel like it's like good point. the blooming of the flower like this i think of this closed bud and she just like was hiding from everything until like okay (laughs) yeah i can open a little bit yeah in the netherlands the vast majority of people they were neither resistance nor collaborators so was audrey in the resistance or not we know her mother was extremely fascist 
fascist. <laughs> Formally? Gritty. I, I feel like she kind of repented of her fascist ways, you know, as she's sitting there eating her bread made of grass clippings, kind of munching thoughtfully, thinking back on Nornberg, thinking maybe it's not what it was all yeah. cracked up to be. I agree. How much is fact and how much is fiction okay. in Audrey's resistance work? Right. When she was hired by Paramount, Paramount was the first company she signed with, they embellished stories that either she told them or they just straight up made up about her. And that is where a lot of this confusion, I think, comes in. So when I was researching stories about Audrey and resistance work in Holland during the war, my standard of truth was, did she herself tell me she did this thing? And if she did, I believed her, because I just think that's not her bag. She's just not the kind of person who puffs herself up. She doesn't need to. People love her no matter what. And rather yeah. than lie, she'd rather not tell you anything. Did exactly. Anything I just think she so wouldn't what say. what did she say about the resistance work? <laughs> yeah. Good <laughs> I'm question. dying to know over here. <laughs> I know. There are a few stories that I think are probably true about Audrey and the resistance. It's almost certain. She says, her son says, everybody says that she danced for fundraisers for the resistance. So she would do what they called dark performances would be held in private homes after blackout, and they would raise money. They would pass a hat around. The music had to be Bach or some other non-Jewish composer, and just in case there was a raid and somebody came in. So they would do their performance. The audience was not even allowed to clap because you couldn't have a gathering of people that was not known by the Nazis. She also said, the best audience I ever had made not a sound after the performance. Someone asked her, wasn't she afraid, though, to perform in these performances? And she says, I wanted to dance more than I feared the Germans. So again, dance and performance and this kind of applause and acceptance by an audience is a big driver in her life. There's another story that is not true, almost certainly not true. I could not find her talking about anywhere where she goes into the forest to pick wildflowers and sees this downed British paratrooper. paratrooper and then- the story is that she goes and she signals to the paratrooper, like, I'm only a little girl. And she's picking flowers just to even look more innocent. And, and so she tells the paratrooper where he might find aid. Then as she's leaving, she's accosted by some Germans. They're like, what are you doing here? And um, she shows them the wildflowers. She's like, I'm just picking wildflowers. And gives them the flowers and off she goes, tripping along, and gives the message to a street sweeper. And I'm thinking, who has all these details? Yeah. The flowers right. and the street sweepers. And even the biographer says, and the street sweeper, with, you know, with a knowing wink knows, you know, something like that. It's just it's so detailed. <laughs> Especially when you can't find it reiterated through her. And I could be wrong. I mean, like I said, it's controversial. It so, sounds like a Hollywood PR does. person has, yeah. has written a like great they were going to put that in the scene of some movie. All credit to her. If she did this thing, hats off to her. But Absolutely. I think she did so many other brave things. All the time she's seen people beaten, how family members have been rounded up and shot. And she has so many strong impressions of seeing the poor Jewish people being rounded up in cattle cars where she's made eye contact and remembers, you know, a certain little boy in a blue jacket. It just haunts her for the rest she of her says, life, the things she's seen. She says about that little boy in the blue coat, specifically. Specifically, she says, all the nightmares I've ever had are mingled with that. So she lived through some tremendous things. And I think the fear in Hollywood was that because of her parents' fascism, some of the stories have been embellished to make her sound like a hero when really she was just surviving. Yeah. And and the dancing was part of that surviving. And it was a risk, but... I don't think she necessarily thought the resistance. No, no. I, it sounds I like hope. that was the way that she brought joy to 
that corner of her life. Absolutely. Bringing Not that like, joy I'm doing this others. to do something really heroic. <laughs> right. Exactly. Just to survive that time, it, it was it was an act of heroism in and of Absolutely. itself. Just to be an ordinary person doing your ordinary things in the midst of that atmosphere of that place in history that that was pretty darn heroic without any wildflowers and paratroopers right mm-hmm. dancing became difficult you have to have a lot of stamina you imagine you're a growing child you're dancing and at that time now there's there's not a lot of food there's what's turning into a period of starvation it her. is 1941 we have food rationing in the Netherlands becomes so severe that by the spring of 1941, it's hard to get a single weekly egg, let alone meat. By summer, there's no tea or coffee. And it's not just a food shortage at the time. There's a fuel shortage. They're only heating one room in the house at a time. Everybody's clustered up in one room. And then comes in 1944, what's called the hungry winter. And that is where the starvation, the real starvation of Holland's people comes into play. She writes, there's there's no food, no heat, no light, no news, no books, no soap. It just sounds miserable. Yeah, she says we lived in a vacuum. So this this particularly happens after... Um, well, just before the liberation. Just Holland. before the liberation. But it's after Operation Market Garden. General Montgomery from the British forces. Monty is in charge of this, and it just turns into a mess. The story of this disastrous battle is told in A Bridge Too Far, famous movie, and the result of this is that there is an enormous battle right in the city of Arnhem. They had to evacuate 100,000 Dutch people out of that city, including Audrey, her brother Ian, and her mother. Her brother Alexander was still in hiding, but they evacuated and marched. It was a basically a starvation march. 3,000 people died on this march. They end up in a house in the country that was owned by the family originally, but her grandfather and her uncle have already been divested of all of their family funds. They have no more money. They have no more land. The Germans have this, wiped them out. It's just all been requisitioned for German causes. So they have nothing. She says, An endless stream of evacuees came to our door begging for food. We took in 40 people for a while, but there is literally nothing to eat. So they had to move on. Then, on the morning of December 24th, my aunt told us that there wasn't a scrap of food left. I had heard that one could forget hunger by sleeping. Perhaps then I could sleep through Christmas. I would try. But there were the stairs to my room. I tried, but I couldn't make it. I was too weak. My legs had begun to swell from edema. I was dangerously malnourished. I was turning a frightful color from jaundice. My mother actually feared I would die from hepatitis. So we're just in pure survival. It's literal survival mode. Awful, awful. I mean, you read many times the things that they did try to eat. There's always the legend that Audrey Hepburn survived on tulip bulbs. And I've, I've read that. And then some people say, no, it was nettles and endives and bread made from grass. Or no, green bread made from ground up peas. Watery soup made with a potato. I think she said that one herself. But the average diet, the most calories that you could probably hope to take in, in a day would be around 500. That that was the goal. And so she had, for the rest of her life, she had stretch marks on her ankles from the swelling, from the edema. Thing. I thought, well, that's one place I don't have stretch marks. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh. Right. Oh, so Audrey. when news of liberation begins trickling through, thousands of the Arnhem refugees, the, that 100,000 who had been evacuated, start to return to Arnhem. At this point, it's not safe, though, in Arnhem. They had left because because it wasn't safe. It's still not safe. And there does seem to be a accurate story. She tells 
there was the Germans at that point were pretty desperate for basic services. So they just needed some women to come and cook and chop things up and clean. And so they would round up young girls and women on the streets and line them up and then order them into vans and just drive them away. And she didn't know where the trucks were going. So a small platoon of Germans, while she was walking down the street one day, ordered all of the girls and women in a line. They were loaded into three trucks. And she says, I kept saying to myself over and over in Dutch, our father who art in heaven, our father who art in heaven, our father who art in heaven. She's standing in the line. The guard turns his back to them and she drops to the ground and rolls under a truck and then runs away to her house, is not caught, and then hides there for a full month. She doesn't leave the house again until liberation. Because though they were back in Arnhem, it was not yet a safe safe place to be. Yeah. Not safe yet. They probably should have stayed in the country eating the tulip bulbs. Well, again, Ella's making the decisions here, I'm pretty sure. Judging hey, from... She's trying. She's trying. Ella <laughs> she's is doing her best. Like, this is her best, unfortunately. This yeah, is She what... just keeps making the wrong calls. That is really her problem. <laughs> okay, so the day after Audrey's Sweet 16, where she's starving and jaundiced in his hepatitis, <laughs> and it's 90 pounds at 5'7". I've read 88. 88 no. pounds and stretch marks. Life has not been fair to Audrey so far. <laughs> no. I love this story because here she is. She hasn't really left the house since rolling under the truck and escaping. She's just been in the house. She's been hearing bombs. She's been hearing fighting for like three days straight. They've been in the cellar. And then suddenly it's just silent. And she says that was almost more disturbing than the cacophony of battle um, was just the silence. And then she smelled something and she smelled British tobacco. So they scramble upstairs, and there were British soldiers who gave her cigarettes and chocolate. For the rest of her life. <laughs> For the rest of her life. She, those are the two things, no matter if she's losing weight or gaining weight or depressed or not, she eats chocolate every afternoon, and she's more or less a chain smoker. So those were the things. And she says it's, the cigarettes made her ill, actually, because, you know, yeah, she's starving and hasn't smoked before. So she says, that was the day I learned that freedom has a bouquet, a perfume all its own, that smell of English tobacco. <laughs> smell is the sense that ev- evokes memories the strongest yes i love i love that i just think that's great and she did smoke i had to look up because it said she favored british cigarettes and so you know researcher christina with a k said what kind of cigarettes were these i must know they were gold flake cigarettes and ella told her that nice girls only smoked six cigarettes a day oh. but when audrey was going through some rough times you could go through three packs a day she oh. says forget six cigarettes this is a 60 cigarette kind of day oh my god they don't show that in the movies no you wouldn't <laughs> think would you uh, no You're like that elegant little elfin thing and she's just yeah it just was a crutch for her i think in a lot of ways yeah i think i mean and she had such major traumas in her life we'll get into more of them later it gets it it gets there better are happy parts there are happy parts it gets <laughs> better are. but it also gets worse in some ways That brings us to the end of this first episode. When you join us next time, we will be talking about Audrey's discovery, her first loves, and her very fast rise to start. Thanks for joining us.